Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I'm here today with Charles Alizard, and Charles is a web developer, a digital nomad, and uh, if he has time left over, he fills his time filming documentaries or being a lecturer at the Essex Business School in Paris. Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, Charles. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Dawson. It's uh, hey. great to be here. Thanks hey. for the um, advice. Thanks, yeah. thanks for coming. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. I realized you just went to uh, back to France after spending quite some time in the Ukraine, and I really appreciate you make this happen. I introduced you as a digital nomad, and it's something that a lot of people don't really know what it means. So the definition in, in popular culture is still pretty open. And uh, I was talking to, to a prior guest, um, Niels Fleging, I think it was episode 10, and Niels was very dismissive. Um, Niels was, was basically saying, well, digital nomads are kind of the worst. They go everywhere. They expect everything to be like in America um, after two weeks of partying and uh, using the free Wi-Fi and not talking to any locals, not learning any language, um, they kind of leave. So those are kind of divorced tourists because they are eternal tourists, so to speak, right? I think you, you, you see this topic quite different, and I know you've had quite a journey as a digital nomad. Uh, could you tell us how, how did that start? How did you get into being a digital nomad? And what do you think this label, what happened to that label? Well, there's so much things going on here. Um, I mean, digital nomad is something, it was kind of something a few years back. I would say up until 2016, 2017, and then it, it went lost. I mean, the meaning of this word is kind of lost. Like to me, I mean, it's very easy to be referred to as a digital nomad because like, as you said, like not everyone knows what it is, but more and more people understand what it is. And when you say, yeah, I'm traveling with my computer and I've been to, I mean, I don't know, like Bali or Thailand or Portugal or South America, then people are like, yeah, you're a digital nomad. But at the same time, it doesn't convey any meaning about what you do and what you are. I mean, the digital nomad is like, it's not even a lifestyle that encompasses everyone, everyone, because it's so 
broad. I mean, I mean you are pro it's probably fine for a caricature of a 28 years old white male from a Western country uh, traveling with a computer and work working from a beach and moving from places to places every other month. Um, that would be a caricature of digital nomad. But I don't think anyone wants to be uh, described as a caricature. And uh, yes, some like to some extent, if we keep using the term, it's my 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 answer is kind of schizophrenic because it's like at the same time I'm I'm, I'm telling like don't use this word because it doesn't bring any meaning, and at the same time I'm saying like what what is a digital nomad? I think uh, yeah. I feel there's so much there's there's so much in it. Um, um, the 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 you know that's why we were kind of. We're kind of haggling over this. I feel there's so much in it, and and for me, digital nomadism is is a very different definition than probably what is reality. And I think I'm, that's why I'm also struggling with this. I feel there's a lot of jealousy from people who don't get to travel or didn't get to travel. So that's kind of the problem number one. Problem number two is that for me, it's driven by curiosity and really making the most of of your time that you have to put into work. Like we all have to do work um, for, for better or worse, right? I think it makes us a better person over time, but we also need the money. Most of us, unless we have a good trust fund, um, we can we can uh, lean on. So we, we, we can use that time that is kind of a, that usually happened in an office and we can move it to a place that allows for way more curiosity. And I've been basically being um, a digital nomad for the last 10 years. I've been to a lot of places that I could have never either afforded or would be interested in, or they were not at all touristy at all. So I went to pretty much any country in Africa and I worked from Africa for a couple of weeks. I went to South America. So I went to 130 different countries in a way that you can't do you can be an explorer photographer, right? But then you don't, you can't have a family, you can't have a career. So I took my children, I took my girlfriend. So we traveled as a family. It's something I could have never done being in a regular job, so to speak. It's something that I could have never done as a tourist because I only get that amount of time off. I could have done it maybe as an explorer and it would have been on my own, right? I could have been um, on a film project, for instance, and gone to all these countries. But still, my dream was always to see the world and compare the world and see how other people live. And for me, that was a golden opportunity. And I know this is not <laughs> how a lot of people behave. I mean, I have no, when I went to Thailand, I always get shocked. I went back in. Uh, well, first time I went in the 90s, I thought it's awesome. Then I went back in 2005 and I already felt like, oh my gosh, most of the islands, you, it's not worth going anymore because it's gotten really weird. Um, and then the Chinese arrived and it's gotten even more weird, um, I feel, in Thailand. And now they kind of retreated from tourism. But I feel like this is also spread to Bangkok. And I think this is the way the world works. Tourism grows so much and people movement works so much. And the wrong people go to the wrong places, let's put it this way. And that's where this, this strange um, perception of digital nomadism comes from. I think it's a fantastic initiative, but I agree with you. It didn't really pan out so well in terms of public perception. Maybe on the ground, and you know who you have more on the ground experiences, maybe it was actually different. I mean, the issue I was trying to raise with the way I tackle digital nomadism is uh, it's very broad to be understood when you don't know what it is. And the way you, what I'm trying to, where I'm trying to go with that is the way you are a digital nomad is not the same way. I mean, you are a digital nomad and I am a digital nomad in some ways. And yet, or the way we do it is very different. My point was when you introduce yourself, you introduce yourself as a serial entrepreneur, a podcaster, and I'm going to introduce myself in my own way as well. But many people introduce, introduce themselves as digital nomads. 
say hello, I'm a digital nomad, or I want to become a digital nomad. And that's where I think this is very limited. Um, because it's way too broad to be defined um, using only one word. Now, when um, the other issue we were talking about is the impact of us, because let's let's include ourselves into uh, into digital nomad if we, if we go that that route. Is that as soon as you enter a place, you're gonna impact that that place. And yes, you have many people behaving in a way that that is lacking respect. But you've seen that with tourism as well. People going into some countries and not leaving the, the resorts or abusing their economic uh, power because when you make money in a Western country and you're going to spend it in a place like Indonesia, Thailand, Africa or South America, then you're going to have an edge uh, in terms of economics. But it doesn't mean you're a better person and many people behave as if like they own the place, but they don't. And that's plain wrong, but that's plain wrong whether you travel and work or you tr just travel. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. If, if I may, if I may interject, when I was recently in, in Mexico and I, I was just, the, the place um, I was at, the, the road was just looked dirty and I was like, whoa, this is really, really a poor area. And I realized how many people will drive by because it's in a, in a resorty area on the way to resorts in Las Cabas. And I realized how many people will look down on people and say, Oh my gosh, they can't even, they don't even have roads. They don't even build real houses, right? So those, those would be verbatim, verbatim, um, statements. And when you ask the real, these same people, yes, so how do you build an economy? How do you actually distribute the, the wealth within the economy? How do you, how do you create, um, economic growth that create, gives us all these things, right? That gives us roads, that gives us uh, modern buildings, that gives us modern health standards. And most people would come up empty and say, mm, actually, I don't know. Nobody really knows, right? So we, there's a bunch of economists, but um, I have Mark later today on the show, and he's, he's have his, his strong opinion about that. So the economists um, have moved far, far out from, from the place where they can describe how the economy actually works. They look at certain symptoms, but nobody actually knows how this, the invisible hand actually started, right? And we don't really know why it works in certain countries, and in other countries it never takes off, right? There is countries that, say Korea, that was really poor and is really rich now, but in other countries like Myanmar, which isn't that far away, it didn't really take off, and nobody really knows why, right? So we have this attitude of using, as you say, our economic power and our experience, but we understand like 0.001% of the system, but we, we make it feel like our ego makes it feel like, oh, this is, uh, I'm kind of representative of all this wealth and of all this good that I created, but actually the person itself created almost nothing. That's kind of how the game works, but that's not how we often transport ourselves yeah. in a different country, which is really yeah, strange. Yeah, and I think like whenever we try to analyze that, we, we do it we are with our own prison. So you're gonna have people who say like, Digital nomadism is bringing some value and economic value uh, to to such and such place. And some other are going to say like digital nomadism, nomadism is bad because those people are taking the plane. I'm 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 gonna be the devil's advocate for just a few few sec seconds or maybe one minute or two. When you consider a place like um, and the place I know better is is Bali, in Indonesia, because I spent a few years there. I, I'm not saying I understand the place because I don't think anyone can, because when you're not from Bali, you can just grasp a little bit. When you, I, I, I believe that if you ask the taxi driver, the barbershop, the guy who sells house and can 
maybe make some like a different living? What do you think about all these expats and Westerners coming from abroad, spending their money? I'm not sure that they're so unhappy about it. Yeah, they're not. That's what we see in Thailand. That's why nobody wants to re- to tourists to return. Um, it was already bad, and then the Chinese tourists, I think they 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 were even worse. Um, let's put it this way, because they they didn't have any a ton of of, of social manners to bring with. Um, that's going to change, but it, it's just the way it is so far. And I think this really broke the camel's straw. And it, it is. I was really surprised how Thailand was been, you know, in the in the middle of this for so long, and they 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 kept. They kept accepting it and then, and um, not being, there was never a major revolt against foreigners or, or tourists in their country. It was seen as a, as something you couldn't revolt against. It was just too big. And um, now I think we see the opposite. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Thailand will be closed for a long, long time, um, at least for, for short term um, arrivals and way beyond any real corona danger. And uh, I, I don't know how, how, how individuals deal with this. Um, but it, I definitely feel it adds a strain and it kind of feeds on its own popularity. So if a country is not very popular, say um, many places in Africa don't get a ton of tourism. There's exceptions apply in South Africa, Morocco, certainly also Kenya and Tanzania in certain areas. But if you go outside of those, you, you see a natural curiosity, you see natural friendliness that people have towards other people. And I think there is a, there's like, I don't know what it is. There's a certain quantity that's that's naturally in, in all of us. But once you extend it, you turn really bitter, and uh, that helped. kind of happened to me too. I live in a touristy area here in San Francisco, and the amounts of tourists and the way they behave, even if you don't know the individual, you think you do because you you, you think, oh, it's the same class, right? It's the tourist or. It's someone who, who should behave that way. You kind of turn against them because there's always someone who messes it up for everyone else. It's kind of like the terrorists on a plane, right? You only need one in a million flights and flying is suddenly dangerous. Human psychology is not good with this. And I think we, we're too, uh, our filters are so broad that we just assume, oh, there's one tourist and he messed it up. And we actually maybe observed this. So it's not a super rare occasion, but it's, or it's something that we see in the press. And then we really turn against people. And I don't know if there's an easy way out of this. So I, I don't know. I was a couple of years I would have cited Thailand as an example that kind of were overcoming this psychological barrier, but it, I don't think they ever have. They just, they were good at ignoring it. So I don't know if there's something you can really do. There is this, this tribe, um, this feeling of a tribe that people have, right? And as a, as a digital nomad or as a tourist, you kind of violate this. Or even as an immigrant, you know, I'm an, I'm an immigrant in the U.S. and I had the same problem, right? You, you don't belong here. You, you, there's, there's always this feeling in the U.S. is one of the best places to immigrate. It still is. Um, but there is this natural aversion to, uh, we don't want to talk to you because you have a name you can't pronounce, so that's the end of story. Um, that wasn't a real big deal, right? Where a few people really brought me that reaction. But I'm saying, I don't know if there's a way to overcome this on a, on a global scale. I don't know, maybe advise people to mind their own business. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of. No, I'm, jo- I'm joking, but um, I mean, all this judgment is coming from maybe some, you've, you've mentioned jealousy or people thinking that money would be better spent in your home country, like economic patri- patriotism. Uh, why not um, protecting the planet without like taking the plane again? I mean, it makes sense, but it's always only one very tiny part of what's happening. 
when when people decide to travel with the computer. Well, so one thing that I that I haven't mentioned here yet, but it's really important to me. I think digital nomadism itself and all kind of travel is kind of my wall, my way to world peace. So I feel like if everyone out there would travel to two hundred countries, um, somewhat voluntarily, you know, but maybe as part of the military, whatever it is. You don't come back to, from 200 countries and say, oh, we have to go to war with pretty much all of them. Maybe one or two because they're really regimes and you hate them for whatever reason. But generally, you discover world peace in your, in your own journey because you discover yourself and you discover a lot of friendly people. 99% are really extremely friendly people, especially outside of touristy places. So I think we need that travel and we need people to get out of their, you know, basement where they sit right now. Because that's, that's where you get better. But if you get new experiences where you get out and see other people, you will come, hap- will come back happy. I mean, not every trip I did was happy, but when I look back, I was like, I can't really memorize a single trip where I felt really super disappointed. It wasn't maybe disappointed compared to my high expectations, but it was never that I felt, oh, I should have stayed home in my basement and saved the money. That's never happened to me. I, I, I cannot agree more. I think that the beauty of it is by 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 mixing but again it comes back to what you as an individual you put into your travel what's your intention behind it if you travel with your computer being like boom i'm gonna i'm gonna behave like a like a king like spending what's what's little money in my country gonna make me a king where wherever i'm gonna travel and and behave as if i'm owning the place that's that's only what you're going to get. But if you travel with the intention of discovering and opening yourself and discovering yourself, then, then that's, that's beautiful. And I think even if you, I mean, you can travel to a, um, a broad range of countries or you can travel to some hubs into which you're going to meet many people from different parts of the world. And that's like in terms of warfare, no, it's becoming very hard to think at this or that country and its inhabitants as enemies because you've got friends from that country. And, uh, and so that's for the, the mixing up and the tolerance. And for the economics, I think it's kind of, it's not really evening things out, but by making money here and spending it there, you're breaking the market in those, these places because the real estate is climbing up. But at the same time, it brings capital, and this capital now runs into this country with new shops and, and new businesses. And um, and I'm not I'm not an economist, I'm not qualified at all. But I'm, my intuition tells me that it's not only a bad thing. I would say, in terms of economics. So I want to I want to find out, you know, what motivated you to go on your journey in the first place. So you grew up in France, right? And then you went to Thailand, Bali. Uh, last time we spoke, you were in the Ukraine. Um, what, what, what made you go in the first place? Um, and uh, what kind of was your, your what are really the, the highlights of your experience? And I know you like to stay longer in most places. What are like the highlights of your, your experience? When, when I was interviewing people for, maybe we're going to talk about it later on, but I've been interviewing a couple of, of, of people for um, remote mentors, documentary I've been shooting about uh, remote work. And 
it's a couple, it's a couple from the States, uh, Rachel and Rob, and they've been writing a book about digital nomads in Bali. And what they came up with is you have push factors and pull factors. And, um, and that's thing that's what happened for most of the people who leave their home country to travel and work at the same time. So a little bit of my story is uh, back in 2016, late 2016, after 10 years of living in Paris and I had my, my studio doing design and development from Paris for different clients, I was moving a little bit at that time, been to, I don't know, Berlin, Canary Island, Morocco, mostly for surfing, not to Berlin, <laughs> but mostly for surfing. It was short term journeys in, into which I, I would take my computer and go surfing with friends or on my own. And I was very, I was well, well versed into uh, books like uh, Remote, Rework from uh, 37 Signals. I was very excited about uh, a year without pants uh, as well. And all these books were really feeding my, my enthusiasm about traveling and working. It was like, I was craving for it. And just doing it a little bit, I, I was collaborating with people who I've never met, but I was based in Paris. And after 10 years of relationship and living in Paris, break up, and then I decided to pack everything. And I was supposed to travel to Bali for a month and a half, shoot a few videos, go to New Zealand. But then it, what happened is that I got hooked with, uh, I got really hooked to Bali, met a bunch of people there that, um, yeah, I was, I was very excited with what I found in, I was in Changu mostly, and I, I just couldn't leave. So I was postponing my, my flight to New Zealand. And then I realized, wait, I'm going to spend two weeks in New Zealand. I'm, I've got so much work to do. Why am I going to spend two weeks in New Zealand when it's cold and it's more expensive? to be locked down in the flat for work. Just, let's just stay in Bali. And so I stayed in Bali, flew back to France for Christmas in 2016. And then uh, a guy um, I met in Chengdu, we became like friends and he offered like, he was like, next year I'm going to take a villa. Do you want to be my housemate? I'm like, let's do that. And then came back to Bali and spent most of my, the last year there, I've been bouncing um, sometime for a week, from some, sometime for a weekend uh, after that, but based in Bali for most of the time until COVID happened. Uh, and uh, early last year, I found myself in Odessa in Ukraine, as you say. And I was supposed to be there for only three weeks. And then, yeah, the lockdown happened and I decided to stay. And then I spent my, most of the last year in uh, actually the entire part of the last year uh, in this time in, by the Black Sea. And, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much my, my story of, uh, how and why I, I became, uh, kind of a nomad. And you said I was, I was, yeah, I really, I re I'm not really considering myself as a digital nomad. Why? Because I like to spend a lot of time in some places. I want to be based somewhere. Uh, I want, I mean, in the beginning, I had the feeling that I should be bouncing, every other month or every other term. But no, I really feel like I need some encouraging. I need to call my, uh, some place home. I have the freedom to, to move, but I that's healthier for me. I really enjoy being anchored, at least for, for a little while. So, yeah. Uh, not so much, uh, not so nomads. Like, uh, the, kind of free, but not so nomad anymore. 
Well, yeah, but everyone has a, you know, everyone creates their own journey and that's, that's, that's absolutely in the cards. I totally understand the, uh, and I didn't get the, uh, the attractiveness of Bali. I, I've been there 20 years ago and I thought it's, it's quite overvalued, very touristy and it's difficult to get around. I was like, well, why would anyone ever choose to live there? And then I went back a bunch of times and, um, uh, it it gets better um, as more you learn about the place, um, as more you discover, and especially Changu is a very special area. It's very pretty. Um, it's very good. Climate is fantastic. It's very very cheap to live. Um, it's very high quality of, of food, and just uh, there's a lot of you can kind of choose what the crowd you want to hang out with, right? There's a bunch of Europeans. There's a bunch of Americans. There is even a few Indonesians who are actually further away. Uh, they don't really live in Changu that much. There is a population, but it's not a, not a, not very considerable. And it's just a beautiful place to be near the ocean all the time, and just basically don't worry about anything. And I, I always feel the rise of digital nomadism. There's there's two things. One was you can work from anywhere. Uh, that was one driver. Do only a few jobs really allowed that pre-COVID. Now it's like pretty established everywhere, as long as you can make the time zone work. And then the other place, the other thing that came in was the a lot of developed economies don't really have the opportunities for younger people and younger people is everyone under sixty now. So it's a, it's a it's a wide swath of the population. But the opportunities for younger people, especially for under 30, they were just not there. There were some opportunities, not that there was nothing, but it was way lower than you would expect in a healthy economy where everything builds on each other and there's opportunity as a balance everywhere. Like the first time I came to the U.S. in the 90s from Europe, I felt like, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity. You can do 20 jobs and there will still be stuff left to be done. This has kind of gone away in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and for a lot of people, the opportunity was, why don't I take my life the way it is? Um, lower my income probably because I go somewhere else um, where I don't have, where I'm not in the ranks of a company, where I'm not uh, having the same visibility. But for $2,000 in Bali, I can live fantastic. And that is pretty miserable living for $2,000 in, in France uh, or in the US. It's possible, but it's pretty miserable. In Bali, it is um, something you probably will back your whole life and say, "Wow, that was the best time yeah. of my life." If if you can make the, the the say the loneliness work, that's a lot of people struggle with this, me included. You 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 gotta go into these, especially if you travel too much. You gotta go into these bouts of loneliness that that mostly kills it for people. They come home after like for some it's a week, for some it's a month, uh, for some it's a year. They come back and say, "Well, I couldn't make that work. I couldn't." I couldn't find a friendship that I find valuable enough that I share enough um, cultural values with or I share anything with. It doesn't have to be a cultural value. And they come back slightly disappointed from that journey. I think uh, this is something that, that is often the biggest challenges for people now. You can take your work, you can take your money, you can take anything else, but you lose that sense of what's my purpose here? Well, what am I doing here? And what are the, what is my social, um, my social network, so to, so to say, that keeps me, it keeps me in the sense of purpose. Now, one is I'm entertained, right? The one part of loneliness is I'm, I'm not entertained, I'm bored. Uh, you watch Netflix, anyone, uh, most people watch Netflix not at home. Um, anyways, um, what I'm saying, the, the other part is it gives you this purpose. It's, it gives you validation from other people that are important to you that say, oh, you're doing something useful with your life. And once you miss that and you have too much enjoyment, like on the beach in Bali, I think a lot of people get lonely for that reason, not just because they don't have friends. It's because they feel, man, this purpose of my life, I'm not fulfilling, I'm not fulfilling my potential. I'm here and it's great, but I can't do this for long. 
which is odd, right? Because your, your actual living quality is by any means probably higher than anyone else. It's very personal. I think that, that you, you're really onto something, um, but it's not true for everyone. I mean, some people can decide to actually like really settle down at least for a very long time. Maybe not forever, but for five years of a, or a decade. Uh, because I think that it gives you back what you put into it. So if you spend some time somewhere and you create uh, meaningful relationships with people who do the same, then you're going to find yourself with these same people three years down the road. Uh, but true, that's true that one of the biggest problem of this, and I mean, I've been interviewing probably like at least for the documentary, officially 45, 50 people, everyone came with biggest concern, the social aspect, and the best thing about being a digital nomad, the social aspect. One positive thing is that you get to meet amazing people from all walk of life, and uh, the drawback is loneliness is always uh, lurking. Um, and you, you cannot build meaningful relationship when you move from one place to the other every other month or every three months. I don't think so. And even if you put one, two, three years in a place like Changu or where, I mean, anywhere else, um, even if you stay, great chances are the relation that you've been building are going to move at least 50% or maybe 40, 60%, something like this. Um, and saying goodbye is a big part of that life. So that's why, yes, sometimes it can take a week, it can take a year, it can take three or four years. At some point, you'll be like, okay, this is very nice, but what's left of it? And I'm not talking about real estate. I'm talking about like meaningful relationship that you can really like, um, that's going to last for a lifetime or for a decade, for instance. I was, in, I was spending uh, a week in the Alps last week, um, lucky enough, with a, a bunch of friends with like 10, 10 guys. Um, some of these guys I know for 30 years. And that's, that's something that I'm really grateful for and I'm going to always take a plane to, to be with them. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, and I'm not talking about family, which is even beyond that. Um, but I, I think like, yeah, once you, you, you have like these long lasting relationship, um, and you're, you, you want these. And I think most of us need this kind of like uh, something you we want to feel some kind of security, security in terms of, um, where do you live, where do you belong and what's your relations. And, and yes, I think when you move too much, or where you, where you live in a place where, where things are very transient and that's really hard to get and uh, that can be a problem, definitely. Yeah, I learned that from, from Naval, from Naval Ravikan. He, he was making this comparison. I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty slick. He said, you know, relationships are kind of like investments, um, like a Warren Buffett investment. They do um, give you compound interest over time. So you get a certain amount of interest um, every every year but it really only starts compounding after 20 years. So it takes a very long time for these things, for trust, right? And what's the essence is it's trust. You don't have to question people's motives as much. And people keep telling me that. They say, oh, you question people's motives all the time. You have all this psychology background now. And uh, 
you, you question people's motives so much that for, for, for someone else, it's hard to, to build that form of trust because there is, how do I say that? You know, trust in relationship is often a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's something social that you create and you create it out of, out of nowhere, out of, there, there's nothing there, right? You, you, you create it because both parties seem to be genuinely interested in creating this trust and it needs to compound over a long period of time. But if you know too much about the true nature of people, then you're too hesitant to create it, right? You, you're not putting in your part of that. So you, you, you will be disappointed, right? Because nobody else will, because it goes all via reciprocity, nobody else will put enough trust in it because they all feel, oh, this person doesn't really trust me, so I don't really trust that person because maybe there's something I don't see. So I think as you get older, and that's something we, we, we look back in our teenager years or in our early 20s, we don't have any of this. We are completely naive. We, we, we just go out there and we befriend everyone we can, right? We, we, we basically take anyone's, anyone's love and... If we get lucky, then there is a certain number of people who just stick around. And then over time, this will compound on us. Like you say, someone, I know a couple of friends for like 20 years or 25 years. I, I, there's a whole different way I can communicate with them than with anyone else because I know exactly what they're going to say next, right? They, they're kind of, I, I fully predicted how they would react. But in a sense, it's not just comfortable. It's, it's something where I know exactly that they don't, they don't screw you over, right? They, 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 it's, it's not just a result you predict, it's, it's a positive result that you predict. And um, I find that pretty, pretty interesting that this, well, the way, the world we are building and the way that we, 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 we count success these days is often more short term. It goes from investing, it goes on social media. If you don't have 5,000 likes or you don't have 5,000 followers, you're nobody. But if you say something useful, like say Nassim Taleb's books, um, and he describes the Lindy effect, so it's something that you shouldn't worry about what is popular now. You should worry about why Nietzsche made it, right? He wrote books that nobody cared about, nobody read during his lifetime, or almost, right? He became famous in the English-speaking um, countries much more than in, in the German-speaking or French-speaking. They mostly ignored him for his lifetime. And then the next 200 years, nobody can stop talking about him, right? So this is actually what you should focus on. If you want to create some value, the wise men of the Renaissance, you should make sure that you compound enough trust, but also enough knowledge and, uh, and wisdom to create something that has long-lasting value. And the question is, if digital nomadism is... Well, once we feel this loneliness, and I, I fully agree with what you, what you described, once we feel this, is, is this a good or bad signal for us, right? Is it something where we feel like, no, we're going to be going to be pulled back to, to something, what I said earlier, to realizing our potential? Or is it maybe the other side where we feel like, actually, we should do something that fulfills our potential, but it has nothing to do with the people around us, right? So the people around us are just the people around us, and they're great, but we actually need to, you know... What they say, geniuses are created in loneliness. Maybe it's necessary to go through this wall of loneliness, being lonely, to create something that actually matters. And you told me that last time you were really happy to be in a place for a long time that's more bleak. And, you know, I know the Ukraine is very bleak. It's the most great country I know. And uh, my, my, I, I, I was in Russia a lot when I was a kid. I know it's a bleak country and it's different, right? It focuses you on uh, there's less distraction. Um, what do you think is the impact on this? Did you feel happy in, in the Ukraine that you could focus on something much better than a body? 
I think I, I still need some time to, pro to process this. But in a nutshell, I would do it again and again and again and again and again. And I, my word hasn't changed. I mean, I was saying this already a few months ago and I'm, I'm, I still feel that. I'm not sure it's for everyone, so I'm not going to recommend doing this for everyone. But I, I, I think that there is... Um, so just to, to put things back in context, I was like, I've been spending, so as I've said, like 10, 10 months, so let's say eight, eight or nine months really on my own, pretty much on my own, not really looking after um, social connections, just a little bit. Um, and it was kind of a heaven for me to be with myself. Um, I've, I've been always kind of, attracted to experience, experience this. I didn't think it would be lasting for so long. I think uh, the context and the world, the way the world uh, works at the moment, I mean, kind of made it look as the best, best thing I could do. Um, it was pretty challenging to go back to Bali. It was not very exciting to come back to France, to be locked down in France. And I found myself right in between. And uh, back in January 2020, so a year ago, I was doing a, how do you call that? Um, collecting a bunch of pictures that you, you throw on the a, on a, on a map. I think it's it, it, vision board, a vision board. So I was doing my vision board. Uh, and uh, so, um, on this vision board, I was putting Bali and, the, and France, and I was because the, the 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 shapes kind of overlap like this. So they were overlapping and just cut them around. And then what happened is, it's just I just really found myself right in the middle. Not in Bali, not in France. You don't have to choose. You you just stay where you are. And 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 I think that's that was very interesting. Uh, it enabled me to to build stuff. I would. I would probably would never have been um, doing so much work if I was staying in Bali or if I was in France or anywhere else uh, because I was just doing this. And my days were filled with journaling, working, playing guitar, going to the gym because the gym was open and then I took um, a personal trainer. So I've, been, I've, I've had the, the chance of having a personal trainer for more than six months, five days a week something I wouldn't have, probably I wouldn't have done anywhere else. And, uh, and the solitude, and this is what I wanted to say when, uh, when you were talking about loneliness, uh, first there is a difference between being alone and being lonely. Um, and I think uh, being alone can be a very big opportunity. And I think we're not, we're not used to be alone anymore. And that's a big problem because you want to be with others because then you bring something and they bring something, but you don't want to be with others too much so that you're not bored or so that you are, you feel valued. And I think, yes, we need each other. And I mean, life is meant to be enjoyed with, with others. And it's good to have people as newer but not to be too much dependent is a good thing as well. And, uh, and this solitude 
can be very interesting to to explore things as well. I mean, it's more like an inner travel than a, than digital nomadism, but it's uh, it's very interesting as well. There's a couple of things that come up when you when when you say that. One I always felt is we 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 take this for granted that we are kind of built as a as a social social being, and we just say, oh, we need social people around us. The, but the real reason is why was that an advantage surviving before? And one is obviously you common protection and common security. But the other one is also we and now we see this with the hive mind. What people say there's so much um, little innovation going on and so many things that that could change the world. Literally one guy on Reddit can change the world. That's what happened last week. There was a guy who wrote um, a post uh, a couple of months ago about GameStop and it changed the world four months later, which is literally almost Wall Street fell apart. And that's one dude on his in his home writing a three-paragraph article, which was brilliant, but it wasn't out of... Like, a lot of people could have written this one, uh, hundreds of thousands of people with a similar insight. And he actually did it at the right point of time and with correct analysis, so to speak. So I think going back to what drives us to more social interaction these days, but in, in a weird way, in a, in a more, they call it sometimes the V connections, it is this, we have to see where the hive is at, right? Because when, when we add value or we feel we can only add value if we don't repeat someone else's work. But so many other people do useful work. So we first need to check, has it been done before? And we've done this, we are like on a base level, right? But you don't look on Twitter for a couple of days and you're like, oh my gosh, the world has changed. You know, the capital was overrun by people in the US, which is a big deal, it hasn't happened in, I don't know, 200 years. So we have a lot of things that we felt could never happen and now they happen on a weekly basis because there's so much innovation. I mean, I don't want to use that word, but just things going on, shit going on. And if we set out to do something, we, we always fear that someone else is doing the same thing and our whole effort is worthless. And I think this is also correct. So we want to do something unique. But finding an area that's really unique, we need to know what the hive is at. And so we continuously bounce. And I think I have the same problem. We continuously bounce between things where we just want to find out what is going on. Then we decide we do something. And two months later, we realize, oh, man. This changes everything. Like COVID literally destroyed hundreds of thousands of businesses, not just existing ones, also entrepreneurs coming up with new businesses. They completely had to change track. And that is why we, 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 we get, we almost like an addict. We go between the hive mind where we just, you know, level up and try to find opportunities short term. And then we go back to our long term opportunities. But these long term opportunities, they get, Changed so quickly. Um, you, you know, in a two month, a startup can now go to like signal in a couple of billion dollars of valuation. And that's, it doesn't really surprise anyone. Everyone is in and says, yeah, that's kind of what I expected. And you're like, holy shit. So a six month is like, 12 month is like, like, like an eternity for a startup now because nothing is stable for 12 months anymore. I mean, nothing is an exaggeration, but a lot of things change in 12 months. So the, 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 the solitude experience, you have to find your field. It's certainly not, I feel it's not technology. It's philosophy. And maybe it's even economics where, where this is true or even maybe sociology to this is obviously harder. Less and less fields allow you to be by yourself and really go deep thinking and find new solutions or tons of new solutions like Nassim Taleb does. Um, there's less and less fields. And when you look at the, the book market, I'm trying to find some book authors coming on the show, right? So I'm, I was looking on Amazon. You know how few people are actually going, actually published as a book, you know, as a paperback? It's a ridiculously small number that actually have a certain distribution in the US. It's tiny. 
I, I'm like, there's literally nobody left who writes books because by the time you go through the whole process, everything you wrote about is completely gone unless you know you have the marketing mechanism and you have a few, a few exceptions to it. But it's not a way to push knowledge into the world anymore. Uh, I mean, economically speaking, it seems that you have better results when you shoot videos because perception of videos, uh, people perceive the value delivered by videos way higher than the value they perceive as a book. And it's easier to shoot videos. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier to shoot videos than to actually write books that, uh, that's pretty solid as far as I understand. I've never tried to write a book yet, but... Depends, uh, probably depends on the... On the subject, I mean, I think a lot of subjects it's difficult to do in a video do. I mean, there's a ton of, um, and I just had two, two of my favorite Yale professors on last week, and they put their own lectures about a decade ago on YouTube, and now it's taken off on YouTube. Like, they have millions of views on their lectures, and they say they get so many emails, they don't know what to do anymore. Um, but it was meant as a, as, a, as a freebie that you give away, right? So then people sign up to Yale. But say, well, the subscriptions, I mean, the, the not subscriptions, they don't have a subscription model yet, but the, the attendance for Yale, you know, it, it doesn't exist anymore right now with COVID, but you, who knows how this changes and they have to go virtual and they would have to find a premium model that works. And they're really at odds because professorship and the premium model and, um, and competing with all the other YouTube models, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work anymore. Education has completely changed. And that's a good segue I wanted to talk about with you. Um, you have a really interesting model, and I, I kind of stole that term, atomic knowledge, from you. And um, I talked with Kelly Purdue from Moonshots Capital about it. Uh, he's been saying there have been a couple of attempts of people um, doing this over the years. Most of them didn't go anywhere. And I was mentioning, well, LinkedIn um, is now finally doing this. It's really catching on. So maybe the time is right. Kind of like social networking. There were 100 social networks before Friendster, and but Friendster came around and, and made it happen. But what do you mean by atomic knowledge? What's your definition and what is your company doing? Um, or what are you trying to achieve? So atomic knowledge is a, is a term I coined because, um, because I was trying to address remote work and trying to help people going into remote work. And I've been working on this for a few years, um, starting in 2016 or something. Um, and it was meant to be a web documentary. So I was trying to, I was interviewing people about, okay, hello, hi, what's your name? What are you doing for a living? Uh, and how did you become a digital nomad? And what are the pros and cons of being a, a remote worker? And how do you do it? And what advice do you have? And if you ask this question to um, a sufficient amount of people, and probably maybe even like a tiny amount, like 20, 50, you will already see that it's very personal. And, and today it makes even more sense because pretty much all the planet, like 80, 60, 70% of the, 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 the people who actually can work remotely like, do already work remotely. And um, it's like a forced uh, paradigm shift, maybe. Um, but then, okay, so if you take the subject about remote work, Remote work for you is not the same as the remote work for me. Might be pretty close, but it's way different from someone working from home with three kids uh, homeschooled. It's way different from someone who runs, uh, who runs a, a 20 people startup and is doing product management. It's very different for someone who runs a 200 people startup and is doing office management or, or CTO. And 
And so the knowledge about what is remote work is just very individual. It's very specific to the people. And that knowledge is scattered. Means there is no, not really one place where you could go and tap that knowledge. So when I was working on remote mentors, uh, which is the app, app I've been building to uh, bring this knowledge to people who need it, I came up with a solution using videos to reduce the knowledge to an atomic level. What, so what do I mean with atomic level is today we're doing a podcast. Like, okay, it's going to be probably 40 minutes, one hour, I don't know, something like this. But it's a, a, a big chunk of time. And if you watch the YouTube video, it's going to be 10, 20, 50, 60 minutes, three hours. And you would have to go through the full length of that podcast or the video to get the information that you need. But maybe you need only X percent, 5%, 10% of that video. So what I'm proposing with atomic knowledge and atomic video is to cut all these chunks of knowledge into atomic pieces. By atomic, I mean you cannot reduce it any longer. Okay, so it's, it's the smallest byte, the smallest nugget of knowledge. And then plug it into a system that you can tap and you can tap in a very organic way. So if you are, um, no, if you are homeschooling your children and working from home as a virtual assistant, you get to find what you need and you don't have to go through tens and tens, like dozens and dozens of hours. And if you are a CTO with a 200 people startup, then you can find the content that you need because uh, of this atomic and network organization. Maybe it's a little bit still abstract. I'm still working on the definition and the explanation, but um, like if you have, like if you can help me uh, presenting it, I'd be happy. But that's uh, by yeah. Oh, I like I like the bus I like the buzzword a lot. I think the way you describe it that you you can't um, divide it any further is is really good. Uh, and I I know um, that Google. Um, is working on a YouTube algorithm who basically uses the transcription and then makes suggestions inside a video what is um, the most important um, section of that video. So instead of just recommending watch this whole video of one hour, which most people won't do because it takes a lot of time, uh, they will say, um, why don't you go to that timestamp? And you can already link to videos. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that until a couple of months ago. You can link to a video um, with a specific timestamp. There's like you can Google this, and you can say um, you can just make a deep link, and then when that person opens this specific video, then only the section that you linked or like the beginning of that section actually shows up. And um, so that's that's I think it's it's a sign of the times that um, the 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 social networks hold so much of that knowledge and. They, they don't make it very accessible. Like I, I, I always joke that, uh, you know, anyone who's active on Facebook and Twitter, they don't know what happened two days ago. And I, <laughs> I'm beginning to have struggle figuring this out too. I'm like, well, what happened two days ago, right? It is, you know, there was something, but you can't really figure it out. You, when, when I was looking up GameStop, for instance, and I was, I was reviewing that trade, I couldn't figure out when did it actually go up. What, when was this, this real rise? And I have looked at that chart before. So I looked at it every day and for the last seven days, eight days, and even before that. But I couldn't remember. 
despite looking at it every day, I couldn't remember when did it actually happen to break out. I, I just couldn't. And it was all over Twitter. And I mean, I've, I've had this information in my hands before, but it was never stored. So the, 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 the ability to memorize long things and to build common sense, I think has kind of gone out the window. And the money is now in very, very specific skills. And what's even worse, especially for the kids, they know that the, 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 the value of that information won't last very long. It's, it's a, you know it now, and you either make money with this, like GameStop, right? You make money with this in the next week, or that's it. Then you can't do anything for the next two years. It's just, you need to find these nuggets, as you say, and the, the half time of their expiration is extremely high, and that's what I'm worried about. So I feel that's already a problem for me as a software or an internet entrepreneur. Whatever I do, I know is already out of business in like six months or 12 months, and that's really worrying me because I want to create something for the next generation, kind of like this podcast, right? So I'm not sure anyone in the next generation is even remotely interested in this, but I want to create something educational that doesn't feel like education eventually. And um, what, what this... Well, what you describe is, I think it's, it's a wonderful level to, to spread out the knowledge. And you see this with really short videos on social media. And you see those, those, it's essentially relatively few people who get all these Twitter likes. I think it's 0.001% of Twitter users get almost all the likes. And they make it, they have a style and they have the, the amount of followers to, to create these viral posts. Um, I always felt LinkedIn is something that, that would be the market for this because there's so much knowledge in our heads that we, we can't really have, we don't really have an outlet for this and we can't really create an, a value chain to monetize it. And I think this is where the social networks are right now. And I think they don't, they're not really aware of this because, um, they, this is kind of a byproduct. They just want to match advertisers and they don't really care about that revenue stream. But if you could identify that knowledge, say all of us know like 10,000 facts, right? And some of them are really valuable. It often takes two hours of an interview, and then you're like, whoa, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, if you could find a way to abstract this out and make people willing, willingly share it, right? Everybody has it, but they don't even know it's valuable. If you can't find a mechanism for this, I think it's this is a trillion-dollar opportunity. Okay. I'm sure I am. But I think if you can make it happen, I think it is, I, I can... I, I, I mean, I'm, the, 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 obvious, the obvious smiling. issue is how do you get people to share? Yeah, yeah my, I mean, my dream when I was dreaming about what I've built, which is the beta version, it was like you could crowdsource knowledge from people's phone, which is already happening. I mean, that's TikTok, for instance. Uh, but organize it takes a little bit more of effort, but then organize, organize knowledge in a way that creates a network and, and that network in turn will en enable an organic discovery. And what I mean by organic discovery is the same as you go into a, a conference, for instance, and then every, everyone is, uh, is, is into the, at the branch, for instance. And then you bounce into people and you like talk with this guy and go to the, that guy and one guy leads you to another and then you have connection and then you exchange cards and, and then all these connections are, are organic and you are the hero of your own journey because uh, the way you discover knowledge is adapted. But sometimes you can, you can, you can be not the right person, but that's your very own path. 
and and you get to decide at what rhythm you you go through uh, all of this knowledge. Um, and I, and I think that's that's a meaningful way to get more knowledge in in, the, in an efficient manner. Instead of what we said before, instead of going through chapters and chapters and chapters and ads and um, and fillers, um, because we. Yeah, I mean the the uh, I think the the real challenge is uh, how do you how do you provide enough incentive and it cannot be monetary at least not initially um, to people to 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 digitize these these facts these nuggets of knowledge as you call them and. You know, TikTok um, is kind of, a, it's, it's evil, I feel, in what it does to, to our children. But if TikTok wouldn't do it and someone else would do it, I, mean, I don't have any, 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 uh, any expectations otherwise. But I feel TikTok has, the, it's kind of like the funny videos from the 80s, right? There was, a, there was always a TV show where you had these funny home videos and people would fall over. And, and it was funny, right? I, I definitely watched it. But it was it was just that, and it was just the program of a of a of a wider audience. And I think what what TikTok has shown, and the algorithm isn't new. It's just they have implemented it slightly better, and they had more money to to build it. Um, if if you can do the same for education, that you can dive into these, and it's 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 a discovery process, and it's sometimes you want to go deeper, sometimes you want to go wider, sometimes you want to get out of it. I think YouTube already does that, but it's not at that level that it's so easy to digest. Maybe it is, but it, it definitely can be done better. If you can do a TikTok for, I don't know, one for education, one for science, one for... Um, so every scientist in the world, and I, I have Mark later on today on the podcast, and he says, you know, basically science, even in computer science, basically broken. He says he gets way more inspiration and way more facts from Twitter. And I'm like, holy smokes, how is that possible? You know, this is one of the most science-y, uh, you know, really rocket science things on the planet right now. All the physicists even say, this is too complicated, I can't keep up. And he says, yes, the, the academia is basically, it's so, these institutions are so useless because there's a better alternative now that we wouldn't have had 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because people started sharing these things. And do I'm not sure Twitter does a good job at discovery. It's kind of, it's, it's a boring, really stupid algorithm just to look at people's likes and then just fire up those as an engagement algorithm. I think that's stupid. And I was talking with Aaron about this, and I think this is, this, this is kind of evil, the, the, engage, the old engagement mechanism. And um, in that sense, TikTok is an advancement. Do I don't do what, I don't like what they've done to our children. And um, I, I feel there is a way to, to, to learn from this. And I, if you if you on one side, so either it can be like a meta approach, right, where you feel you, you take existing content and just parse it into the engine, or it's something where you originally have that content. I've always felt a lot of TikTok videos, they don't originate from TikTok. They came from somewhere else. People just moved over because you, you gave them that promise. And I think that's enough to, you can have 2,000 followers, you can have 3 million views. Like just like that, because if the algorithm does everything, the followers don't do anything. And someone was saying that on Inst about Instagram. They said once I you tell an Instagram Instagram creator, you don't need any followers and can have three million views. Nobody will ever publish anything on Instagram anymore. At least not first. You always release it on TikTok. And if you can do this to to scientists, if you can tell them, why don't you give me those nuggets and I give you three million impressions? I, I mean, you know, that's just maybe validation, but it's also your standing, your social capital. Um, if you do this to the rest of the world, that's, I think, more than a trillion dollar opportunity. Yeah, but uh, that's not, a, the problem is it's not entertainment. 
And uh, I mean, with TikTok, I'm not sure everything is entertainment, but it works because it's entertainment. So it's not very hard to go from one guy swimming into minus 18 degrees climate in Russia and saying, welcome to Russia. And then you just stumble upon a puppy doing something like this. And then you go to some someone like like putting an ice cream on his face. That's, that's, not, that's dumb, but that's not a problem because it's like Benny Hill uh, on, 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 on the screen. It's like, uh, I mean, you don't have to have a connection between these entertainment nuggets, but doing this for, um, for science or tech, well, if it would be easy, it would would it be done already, right? I'm not saying I'm not saying it's easy, and it's more contextual, it's more complicated. AI needs to be much more clever of, of figuring out uh, these threats. Um, even the YouTube algorithm is kind of stupid at this right now. And um, so, yes, yeah, so you, you need to understand the content to an extent, not fully, but you need to have a hunch. Um, the AI is good at this, right? So it has a lot of hunches now about understanding content. And when I, when you think further, this is the future of education. I always talk about that. I think the future of education is more like TikTok or YouTube because that's the only thing our kids are interested in. And kids are always gravitating towards knowledge, maybe socialized knowledge, right? Not like hardcore knowledge. They don't want to read a science book because they feel it's, they do a lot of work that's actually not rewarded because nobody cares about it. But they gravitate towards what is the knowledge that has a, has, that gives me any advantage in society relatively soon. Right now it's TikTok and it's the silliness on TikTok, but it doesn't have to be. If you, if you do, I don't know, machine learning in a TikTok format and kids would adopt this because it's fun enough. You know what you can do to the world? You can change the world and you can triple the GDP in a couple of years. I mean, the, the impact would be enormous because we would have AI for pretty much anything we do in life. And all we do is sit at home, collect our $5,000 check. You know, 5,000, it would be such an enormous impact on people's lives. And if you can turn this into the future of education, which is a real problem right now because they're all falling apart, they have no place in society anymore. They don't, they don't want to admit it yet, but, or some of them do, but a lot of professors on YouTube do a much better job than any professor at any college you go and pay a hundred thousand dollars at. So there's no need to do this anymore. And if you could just put this in an app and say, Oh, I learned, and this is what I've been doing actually. I, I tended to drive a lot the last couple of years. Because I really wanted this time to learn. It relaxes me. It gives me, I don't want to sit at home and stare at the wall. But if I look at the, the outside and listen to podcasts, lectures, I did a lot of psychology courses. I was like, man, this is fantastic. I learn a lot. Um, I, I'll drive around. I see the world. This is almost better than travel. Yeah. But I think it comes to uh, that. The, the tricky part of that is um, it's more expensive in terms of. It, it, it puts more effort on the creator and it puts more effort probably on the, the person who is watching. Because again, like, um, you, you, you have to, if, if you take atomic learning and then, then let's say the biggest piece of information is five minutes, which is already big uh, at the moment, then it means that every five minutes you need to, pay, to make a decision. Unless the algorithm as a machine does it for you. And if the machine does it for you, it means that you need to give the information to the algorithm beforehand, which needs someone needs to fill in all this metadata to make the algorithm do the work instead of the human watching. Um, this is where I see the biggest challenge. And one of the, one of the limitation I've, I've, seen so far with atomic videos um, 
is this effort. You have to click to go to the next stage, stage which is clicking every oh, yeah, that's, 60 seconds. That's not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this and, can't be happening. It can't be no manual it, effort. Yeah, and you don't have it with TikTok because you just you don't you just scroll down and it's very satisfying. That's why it's addictive because you have a satisfaction. Watch video, watch video, watch video, and then you, you're ticking the, the the boxes and it's that's satisfying. If if you have to break concentration because each time you finish one piece of information, you need to click to get the other one. Uh, the the stakes need to be very high to match that effort. So the information no, I, I, you yeah, get yeah. need to be like yeah, from a very need to be very high. Or or we need to build something that kind of automatic and know you it's more like a mind valley approach, I would think, where um there is one producer of the, the content. It's a probably different uh, model than TikTok. Uh, I, I hear my, you. Valley is very successful, but uh, uh, probably uh, not at the same scale as, as TikTok. Uh, in, economically speaking, I think, I think in terms of uh, bringing value to the world, I think it's pretty uh, pretty um, high level. But in Mind Valley, uh, you have one entity responsible for shooting everything, and then shopping it down and creating relationship between all of these pieces of content so that as a user you don't have to make that work i mean you can choose with which uh interview you want to watch but you don't um i mean it's it's um it's curated i want to i want to try that out uh do i think it needs to be uh, curated by an algorithm so to speak one thing i just wanted to add what i feel always changed the game for me was I didn't like chemistry in school. I, I loved physics and biology. I hated chemistry. I don't know why. Do it very similar. And um, I loved math. Um, and one thing that turned it around for me was experimenting with actual chemicals, right? Seeing things blow up, literally. I was like, man, this is awesome. I don't care about the math anymore. I really just want to experiment with this stuff. So if you can go that far and with AI, you know, there's a bunch of abstraction layers, but in the end, it's very easy to just run it and nothing happens. Or you run it on your local machine or some other cluster and you see what happens and then you validate the results. You're like, whoa, this is really cool. So it's it's very easy to experiment with AI. To the understanding it is is hard, but playing with it, like I do this in my my own spare time, I think this is this is very rewarding. That's just one topic. I mean, there's hundreds of topics, but even with history, say, instead of just and I don't know what the answer is, obviously, but just learning about the facts, you can learn, you can see into people's lives, you can have videos, obviously, uh, their, their, their remakes, um, how it felt to be in the 16th century in a, in a chapel, right? Or what would the discussion be about in the 16th century England? I read a book um, from the 16th century, a Scottish book, and I was surprised how different the language was. Like, the English at the time was quite different than the current English. It is understandable, but you're like, well, interesting. I never knew that. Um, I just learned that now. It's not too late to learn. Probably with French, it's the same. I know it's the same as German. It's quite different from 400 years ago. Um, I, I want to move to to a slightly different topic. And now that I mentioned French, um, I I always felt, and you know, you you you're my, uh, you, you're the closest I can torture with this topic. And you you can tell me if if we go into a direction that you don't want to. I always thought about the, the French exceptionalism in uh, in the last couple of hundred years, right? France has been has been a republic pretty early. It was one of the earliest ones to have a 
democratic revolution didn't turn out that way, but at least people tried. It it had something of a leadership role in in the world, I would say, for a long time, and now definitely in Europe. And what I what I always feel when I go to to, to French speaking colonies, say in Africa, there's a really good um, civil society, like institutions built. Like, say there is a there's a the, the basic of 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 um, civil society works so well, even if it's just projected into Madagascar, which is a really poor country. But the, the city and the way it's built looks beautiful. There's an enormous amount of of civil engineering going on that actually works even in Madagascar, which is a really, really challenging place to do that. And it's all French, I think, ideas that came with this. And what I felt, this was really an enormous advantage, 18th, 19th century. And then it kind of trickled out and this, the, the, the way what French exceptionalism um, delivered to the world is, how do I say that? It hasn't been as prominent in the world, and I'm trying to find out what the factors are, and I feel like the, the American and British influence is really Adam Smith, right? You don't, you don't need to do that much. You basically install a basic system, enforce the rules a little bit, everyone gets rich and everyone loves it. Like you don't, it's a very light, um, light approach that takes a while to take off, and sometimes it doesn't, but usually Kenya, you know, Uganda, these places took off some of the richest countries in Africa. Basically, but just doing the same everyone else does, just it was with the right system, so to speak. Um, what do you what do you think that is, and what is French exceptionalism to you? Being growing up in one country, in that country, uh, what do you think happened to it over the last couple of hundred years? Oh, it's a very deep one. In it's pretty. Is it even, I think it's even dangerous question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you you can decline to answer. That's all good. He wants you to make a real judgment call. That's can be called. <laughs> so, um, I mean, what it is uh, growing up in France, I think that, that I, I've been very lucky. That's what I can say. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've been very lucky. I mean, personally speaking, and I think um, most of the people like being French is pretty cool. Uh, I'm not saying in comparison to anything else, I'm not saying it's better. I'm saying it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Like we have, um, we had <laughs> a good system and uh, we have, I think there is a strong culture. Um, we have very good food, that's not a secret. Uh, a great sense of hospitality as well. And um, there is a big history behind, I mean, we can talk about the last hundred years, but France has been, has been around for quite a while. And I, 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 it's very hard for me to say what it is to grow up as a French guy, teenager, kid, because it's, it's like the fish, in, <laughs> it's like asking the fish, how is the water um, in, 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 a, in a way? I mean, I don't have, I don't have the, the distance to analyze that. I can only, uh, yeah, I can only feel the good thing about it. Maybe some limitation I could, some limitation I could point is, um, I mean, French is French and then not so many people speak English, for instance. And so every movie is dubbed. 
the cool thing about it is that you get to watch movies into your uh, into your um, like translated into your um, uh, mother um, tongue. Limitation of that is that most of us, uh, if you com make a comparison with the Netherlands, for instance, where many movies are dubbed, uh, the English level of French people is like really sucks. There's no, there's no other words. And I'm not only talking about the, the sharp accent, I'm also, and I'm including myself into this, um, I'm talking about like vocabulary or ability to actually express themselves in, uh, in, in English. And it's not so much of a problem until you want to work in tourism, but it's a big problem when you want to access knowledge. Because then you have to, I mean, if, if I take the perspective of a, a developer or a designer, if you wait for the knowledge to be translated, then you just already take six months or a year of latency. I don't know to which extent this is true today, but five or ten years ago, this, this was a reality. And that's one of the, when I'm, I'm sometimes I'm doing coaching and mentoring for developers, And that's um, anytime someone, I mean, for juniors, anytime this comes up, I'm like, where do you source your, uh, where do you learn? How do you learn? And if, if it's not in English, there's something wrong about this. And I think it, it comes from the source of exception. That's one limitation. Um, I tend to know, understand more why we are sometimes perceived as arrogant and a little bit snobbish. The, I mean, what do you want to do about it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> sometimes I've got some reflection. I'm like, you're pretty, you're pretty cool for a French guy, which is like, okay, interesting. But it's hard for me to understand why people think this. I mean, until I see some of my compatriots, but uh, I, it's very, it's, yeah. Well, I feel, I feel, I feel that, yeah. Detecting arrogance in other people, it's often, they're not fully telling you the truth. So I think there is a good and bad side to arrogance. There is the, the, the bad side for me is people who are not humble, people who are just boastful and they're, they're you know, the Old Testament words, um, they're wicked. Um, and then there is a good side of arrogance where people are trying to, to blend out noise, right? So you, you say you go to, to a crowded uh, market in Marrakesh and people shout at you and there's hundreds of people and they all want to sell you something and you, you, you immediately going to be arrogant because you can't, there's no way you can talk to everyone and have a chat with them. Um, and, and that's, that's impossible. Like it's humanly impossible. That's the good side of arrogance where you feel like, You want to focus on something that has a real value. Um, obviously, for you, it's just to get through to the other side and maybe buy what you want to buy and not get distracted. So whatever that value is, I think people are are using this in a too broad um, a spectrum, and they 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 associate it very often with, with with French. I don't think that's true at all. It's not my experience at all. Of people and I grew up in Germany, right? So I have I have. There is a strange. Um, I think there's a very strange relationship between Germany and France, and that's kind of not admitted in public. I don't know why. People, it's almost like there's Austria and Germany that kind of hate each other a lot, but they don't admit it in public. If you ask them, they would say, oh, no, we're all friends. But if you say, to do the same thing in private, they hate each other for generations. The same is true with the Poles. So all the neighbors of Germany, they hate each other. 
And I think the same is true with France, but you're not allowed to talk about that anymore. So there's this rivalry, right? There is this, who, who is the country that, that leads Europe? Um, that's been going on forever. And um, what I always felt like, they, they, people find these, these stereotypes that they, they can just put people in and then the story is over. And I think this is the French stereotype of being arrogant. In my personal experience, it's very rare. Um, and I feel, especially when you go to France now, the, the ability to speak English has skyrocketed. I mean, 20 years ago, you would, you would find that people say, don't, don't talk to me in English, please say something in French. Sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly. I feel that's changed a lot. I, um, 90% of the time, and even when I went to, to other French-speaking places um, all around the world, people are like, oh, you speak English? Why don't you give me, don't give me this broken French, right? Just, just say something in English. And a lot of people, especially, I think everyone under 40 has a glimpse of English now, who has some exposure, right? Even the construction workers, I feel. Um, and that's pretty amazing um, to see that change. It also happened in Germany. I think this is all over Europe um, that people have figured that out. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, it's been improving like, uh, like a lot, that's for sure. Um, but I think there is still some, um, I would have to take you into a classroom, <laughs> like, like a teenager classroom where you learn English. And, and that's, that's, if you speak English, if you, if you try to speak English in the proper way in a classroom, then that's mockery coming, lurking. And I think we still have this thing where you, when you try to speak English, uh, you still have the, the mockery and the, actually the, the worst, the worst comment about my English speaking I've had are not coming from Americans or English people. <laughs> We've been pretty encouraging. It's more from French people judging me because we still have this, yes, this mockery about speaking English. And um, yeah, again, like in itself, that's a foreign language. It's, that's not a problem. But the problem is that the world speaks English and that's pretty, I think it's better. Back to arrogance, I think part of it is and this limitation in terms of communication might might sometimes prevent French speakers to blend very well uh, because I don't know why maybe they don't like to hear themselves speak speak English maybe that's how I used to be and now I've spent a few years abroad so I'm kind of I'm trying to take it easy with my stuff and my English like okay I'm gonna sharp accent and just speaks anyway. Um, well, they say that about accents, right? They say that about accents. If you have a strong accent, you kind of secretly still belong to that country that gave you the accent. You kind of you're not ready to give up this, and that's more like an immigrant thing, right? Here in the U.S., uh, for you that's obviously different, but you 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 can cultivate that, like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger did famously, um, or you can just give up on that, and that's um, something I'm struggling with, right, with my accent. It's a question: How far, how far are you in that transition to to accept yourself as an American with all these flaws? Right, there's a lot of things that are different in America, especially in the extremes than they are in Europe. And it's it's hard for anyone, especially when you come from Europe, um, to accept that fully. Um, and a lot of my French-speaking friends who grew up in France, they carry a huge accent because they kind of there's so many things that are good in France. I don't want to give up on them. I want to be part of that culture, part of the American culture. And um, to an extent, you can do that, right? I mean, that's that's absolutely doable. A lot of entrepreneurs here in, here in the Valley, they, they roll that way. 
I think in the end, you, you, there comes a time in your life, usually, when you have to show your allegiance. And this is where you, you, you change your accent, too, because eventually that accent becomes a liability or not, or you go back to Europe, right? So I'm struggling with this. For, for, for instance, I've, I never thought I would go back to Europe. I thought, um, I'm, I'm home here. I felt that the day I arrived. But now things have changed a lot. Um, and in the U.S., you know, the city's basically imploded. Um, you, you, it's the, the whole spirit of entrepreneurship in the U.S. has gone down the drain. It's still there in certain pockets, and it's there in PR. But in a, as a broad um, initiative in many states and in many people's minds, it's it's underwater. Everyone's depressed right now, but I feel that's something that shouldn't have happened from my point of view. And uh, Europe... I went to Athens in, in October, um, and Athens, I always thought of kind of an African city. It was really dangerous, and it's kind of everything is like, everything is in, in, a, in a state of, it's almost falling apart um, in downtown Athens. And I always looked down at that, right? And then I came back this year, and I'm like, whoa, this is, this is probably the most urban city I've been in a long time, because the American cities are not urban anymore. You can't go outside. It's too dangerous in many places, and there's just nothing going on. Everything's closed and boarded up. And Athens was just this, this epiphany I had is what well, Europe has been initially in the initial stages of Corona, and I don't actually know how, what happened in the last six months, but until October, it's done remarkably well, and the city is comparatively so much nicer than anything you can find in, in, in coastal America, at least, um, exception, as Florida. And that really shocked me. I'm like, well, suddenly Europe is on this revival. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't, it wasn't uh, I think it's over now, and what I hear out of, of Germany especially, it's pretty dramatic. Um, I definitely don't want to be there anymore. But that looked different six months ago. It's very fluctuating, I think. So the, 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 the summertime probably was doing a, a great job at uh, making things uh, probably shinier than they are now with wintertime. And people are, I mean, it's, um, the morosity is, uh, is probably here again a little bit. But... Um, Yes, sorry, I'm, I'm lost. We were talking about the accent, and then we went to, to, uh, to, to, um, to, to the, yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I think it's different when you work on your accent. It's different what you want to achieve with it, and when you when you you talk about your own accent, that's in the context of being a U.S. citizen and leaving your accent behind. I think also the the German fits way nicer with um, the German accent fit way nicer with English because of the roots of the languages which are different from Latins um, and so it's sharper when you speak French maybe also I'm not sure the girl did a great job of as like bringing the adoption of that that kind of accent um, I was working on my accent with a um, a teacher, he did a great job, actually. <laughs> Even if you, you can't notice it, we've been working on that. Um, because I wanted to to be able to express myself, but it was a context of expatriation. So in Bali, uh, it's kind of, it's a big mix. And uh, everyone has an accent, you know, in, in, in some way. So it's, uh, it's not so much of a problem, but it was more like for fluency and being able to express myself as easily in English as I would in French and being sharper, like being able to, to make like jokes or play with words in the same way that I can do in French. And I wanted to get my, uh, the same agility with words, um, and ideas that I have, uh, in my, in my, uh, in, in French 
And I wanted to be able to do the same in English. And when the accent come, comes in the way, uh, it kind of breaks a little bit that, um, the, the, the sharpness when you express yourself. That's what I wanted to correct. And at some point I realized that um, probably it would be better to give myself a break <laughs> and, uh, and just accept that I have an accent and I'm not going to just to erase it for good. And by doing so, by allowing myself to have my accent, then you release some of the pressure and hopefully that improve um, the ability to speak without, uh, speak without speaking and at the same time judging yourself. Uh, but that's different. That, um, that's not in the context of becoming a, a U.S. citizen. That was very, uh, a very different context. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we, we can understand it very well. Um, I don't think you have to be worried about it at all. And I, I know the challenge, you know, you, 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 you speak one, if you speak one language a little bit, then you kind of can get around, right? You, you can kind of have a basic conversation. And then scaling it up is a lot of effort. I, I've been there with Russian. I was actually pretty good in Russian for a while. And I feel it's, it's hard for me to have a complicated conversation. Do Russian lends itself very well to complicated conversations. It's awesome. But I, I just, the brain power required, um, like the, the practice you need in order to do this fluently is, is, is a lot. And I learned it as a kid and I, I spoke it as a teenager and when I went there early in my, in my life, but <laughs> I find it really hard to get there. Um, and I know why, why these authors, uh, the, the Russian authors, um, they, they excelled so much in the 20th century. And I think German is pretty close to this. It's good for really complicated subjects, but it's good for like, deep dives. It's not as good to talk about the big picture. I mean, that's also how the people roll, right? And so there, there is an, uh, and when, when you said that, I feel certain languages lend themselves to, to certain purposes pretty well, but you can't, you can't say if you're really good in France, and I, I make assumptions here, you say, when you, for instance, talk about culture, or you would talk about a certain emotion, um, Finding the same words in another language is really hard because they might not have the words or they don't have the meaning or the whole debate about this is pretty underdeveloped. And I always feel this with Spanish, right? There's certain things I think you can express beautifully in Spanish. But even if you're really good in English, it's just, it's not the same, right? So there is, the language is not just like a, like a, like a different, like a, like a development, like a coding language. It's also, there is a lot of common experiences baked into it. Um, and I always say that that's the curse of the philosophers. The philosophers start kind of from scratch. Nobody, nobody knows all the other philosophers out there and what they've been going on about for centuries. People forget about that. They may know a little bit. So they don't have a lot of stuff to reference to. Um, so if you, if, you, if you study all the books, you can say, uh, oh, this is like Hobbes or like uh, Rousseau. And... But nobody knows what that means, right? There's a few other philosophers and maybe a few people who write it by accident. Like you probably learned, learned about Rousseau in school. But everyone else is like staring you in the face and says, hmm, okay, well, what does that mean? So you can't reference anything. Like with the coding language, you can do make a lot of references incorporated. In Python, it's very common to incorporate everything that's out there on GitHub and just five minutes later, you're done. I think the same is true with a lot of languages. You feel like, oh, you make this reference and people know what you're going on about. If you make the same reference in English, people still stare you in the face and say, I don't know, Rousseau, I don't know, some kind of socialist. And that's maybe all they know. And then that, you start from zero. And that's the problem with languages, I feel. You can't just take your mind and pour it in a different language and then have a similar kind of conversation. You can't, right? Yeah. 
and that's uh, that's the limitation of it. And probably you can bridge that after like twenty or thirty years. I don't know. Um, another limitation for me of language is like that's pretty okay. Like this is easy. We were like one on one, so attention is is only bi-directional. But I feel that the challenge is not there for me. It's more like when you are in a crowded place and several people are talking. And this is where um, talking in another language than, than yours becomes a little bit more challenging and, and where uh, you see the, the gaps of, of expressing yourself in, uh, in a foreign language. Especially when other people don't, when you when you have like a bunch of English speakers uh, in 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 that crowd, um, and it's uh, I mean it's, it's not so it's not so so hard, but it's that that's one of the challenges of like we actually I've, I've been very de- deriving drifting um, with this um, foreign language idea, but um, yeah. It's, I, we, we went from like talking about the French limitation for the last <laughs> and the, the, the evolution of the of France for the last century to actually the challenge of speaking English in a foreign country. Um, well, that's the know. beauty of it. We can do what we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Hey, I, I one more thing with the languages. I think that's what people don't don't overlook is. It's what I loved in the old days, and correct me if that was, that was maybe my wrong impression, but people had, they had a religious language, Latin, like they, they spoke Latin in church, and they, they listened to, to, to the priest in Latin. They, they had an everyday French, and often then they had a, like a local language, like a dialect. So where the, the, the region I grew up speaks a dialect of German that's most people in Germany can't understand. Like every single word, just oral transmissions is different. It, it's written, it doesn't really have a written representation, but you can't go around and, and speak regular German there. You would be mocked right away. You're like, well, what is this person? So you have to speak the local dialect, which is very different. And you know, most Germans wouldn't be able to understand. So that's kind of the local language that you speak. Then you have a written language. And then you have like a Latin or like a, like English is now coming up as that, as a modern type. So for what I'm trying to say, for every purpose of who you talk to and what what you want to say, you have different languages. Maybe Latin is all for religious purposes, like the Arabic store, right? Even in Indonesia, you're supposed to learn Arabic for anything religious, right? When If you go to a mosque, you have to understand the prayers in, in Arabic. And I think that's a really good approach to say purposefully, um, for instance, we talk about things in that language only. And then we, in Russian, we would talk about chess, right? Think about that. We would, when we talk about chess, we would talk only in Russian words and Russian, Russian expressions and ideally the Russian language. If we would talk about Jesus, we would have to use, go back to French, right? And if we talk about the economy, we talk in English or maybe Scottish. I think that's still the, 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 the I mean, for the French, the dialects in France, you still have them, but I think that the last generations, Maybe in Brittany and Corsica, you still have like nests, not like places where people still use dialects and cultivate that. But I, um, that's really, I mean, that's that's not really aging. Uh, but I think at the, I mean, on, on the global scale, we have English for business. I don't know if it's still the case, but French used to be the diplomatic language. Maybe still the case. I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, the game is, has been changing quite a bit during the last 20 only, years. Only in Quebec. Only in Quebec. 
for the, for the diplomatic language. Okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Um, it, what, 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 but going back to uh, to our to the French exceptionalism, I think there is comparative advantages that every every country has some some bigger than others at the changes over time. But it's being reflected in the languages, right? So you you see that language taking off because the influence and the culture is so strong, like Hollywood movies, right? They, they influence a whole generation. That's kind of all they know about social interactions outside of their group of friends. And this is 100% Hollywood. It's just so far ahead of everyone else. Nobody can compete with it by, by a long shot. Or like Google, right? Google can just change the search results and then we would never see, I don't know, Donald Trump again. And like anything with Donald Trump would be censored. And I think 99% of the people would just accept that and you change, you, you change the perception of reality completely. It's gone, right? So wherever you're good at, you have the ability to not just... And not just voluntarily, but almost like involuntarily, almost like the, the Chinese propaganda mechanism, right? You, you, once you have these monopoly of, 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 of elegance, of, of knowledge in that area, you can kind of push around everyone else who wants to do, who wants to be in that area of, of even arts or, or storytelling. Or we, we see this in, in, in the internet economy right now, where everything is basically, if Google wants to push us around, they can. Nobody can, nobody can replace Google relatively quickly. And I think this reflects this exceptionalism. Once you figure something out, you basically become a king, the modern day king. You, you, Zuckerberg can do whatever he wants to an extent. Yeah, until you're no longer a king, because some something don't, yes, something don't revolution, last. revolution, or um, one way because you were you were talking about the last hundred years and and the French exception. Um, I'm kind of like thinking, my thinking is kind of all over the place regarding that subject, but the influence of France is like, I haven't been everywhere in the world, but it's, uh, I mean, you, you talk about Paris, pretty much everyone I've heard about Paris. And uh, for instance, spending like a few months in, uh, in Odessa, the music in the supermarket was pretty much 95% only French. And you could see French writings everywhere, um, and especially when it comes to food. And I've been impressed by the way I was received as a French, uh, a French, a French guy. I mean, in terms of like welcome. Oh, you French? Very interesting. Da da da. And that's I haven't done anything personally for this. Um, it's just like the French brand uh, doing the job. But what I was thinking about in terms of like France today is, I'm not sure if it's true or if it's very appropriate to say this, but I was thinking about the product lifetime where you got some growth and then, then you reach some kind of hate and then you start eroding. And I think I don't want to talk about the whole, the, like France as a whole, but let's take gastronomy, for instance. I don't know if I mentioned it, but before being in tech, I used to be a chef. And I was, yeah, I used to, I was a chef. And uh, at that time, and it was not so long ago, but at that time, like France was really like on the top of gastronomy, pretty much. But it was 
the big, not the beginning of the end because it's not the, the, the end of French gastronomy. Gastronomy, French gastronomy is still something, but we were kind of alone until like 15 years ago. And then you had like Spanish chef coming in and, and Japanese chef and American chef. And then suddenly you had chefs all over the world. They're probably they were here before, but then with communication and everything, it was no longer about only the French gastronomy. And, uh, and something that we used to take for granted was no longer here. And French gastronomy is still very strong, still something, but it's no longer a monopoly. And we can no longer pretend that we have monopoly of gastronomy or monopoly of cuisine or monopoly of good taste because it's just plain wrong. Um, but when you keep thinking like this, when you keep thinking that, I'm not sure if, I mean, <laughs> I've got, you have to put a lot of salt in what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm, what I'm saying, a lot of salt. But if you take for granted that you're the king and you don't need to make any effort, but then one day you wake up and, and, and it's uh, someone else or you're no longer alone. And I think that's, that's what happens with exceptions. Again, again a, lot, a lot of salt, but that's the best way I think I can put what I think about France as a whole was taking the gastronomic example because it's the easiest one or maybe it talks to everyone, hopefully it talks to everyone. But yeah, you grow, you grow, you grow and then you sit on the top and you sit, you sit, you sit and then, and then you, you still need to grow to go somewhere and I think that, that, that's the problem. Uh, we have a lot of, um, France has a lot of uh, things that we take for granted, like social security, all the system, like many things that are taken for granted and uh, maybe cannot last for so, like maybe cannot last because it's not sustainable. It used to be sustainable, but not in the way the world works today. Yeah, I mean, creative destruction, right? Creative destruction should be uh, always something we're looking out for and I think we haven't destroyed destroyed enough the last 30 years. I mean, I'm, I'm very much at odds with the central bank's policy, which I think is enabling a lot of this. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a cultural and political um, decision uh, to go along with this, <clears throat> and especially in such an entrepreneurial country that the U.S. used to be, I, I expect, better. But the whole world has that problem that we, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that we, we run into these these. And I think this is natural. We, we, we've been successful, but now there's China out there and there's other places out there. And we have these, we know we should, we can do better, but there's all these pretty, and they say this about democracies. And I mean, this is also true about the way we, we created these countries. They're very, they're very fixed in place, right? There's all these laws and there's all these, these, these places. This, this, this framework has been built for so long, especially France has been building it for hundreds of years. The U.S. is a little newer. I think this was partially their, 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 their blessing that it was simply, it wasn't as stale. It was still able to be flexible and change and adapt to whatever was coming. And the European countries, they haven't gone through the same level of renewal, um, I think since the French Revolution. Um, and it was the Renaissance that kind of demanded that, um, that 
a change in aristocratic policies, right? There were a lot of writers in political philosophy that came up 14th, 15th century and said, oh, we need to change this because it just doesn't vibe with the people anymore that we have these these blood relatives that are most of them are idiots. There might be some great king in there, but usually they're idiots. And why do they rule a country with so many smart men that have been educating themselves? So the aristocracy was pushing and then the people, the peasants were pushing. Everyone's pushing for, for a more democratic idea. And then we had a lot, we had this huge destruction and the creative destruction. I would accept the 20th century mostly from there because I think there's the core structure of states has often been staying insane. And the U.S. basically only rose to power in the 20th century, right? Before it wasn't, it was very regional and not much was going on, to be honest. And I think we, we need, and people call it the Great Reset. I think they have different ideas about that. But I think what, what, what's happening in France is happening simultaneously in a lot of other European countries, and it's happening in the U.S., Australia, U.K., they all build on the, on the fruit of, I feel, Adam Smith and a, a culture of a rule of law culture that we can trace back to the Greeks, but it's really, I feel, like an 18th, 19th century idea. And we haven't really reset enough to make that happen, but it's our choice to change that, right? We, it's easy to change that if you just have the will to do that, um, and that's true in the U.S. as well as in Europe. And when I left Europe 20 years ago, I really felt Europe doesn't have the will to innovate at all. I always felt the U.S. had more of this. I'm not so sure it's true anymore. But the will to change was just not there. Everyone felt, let's just hang on to the old system. It's worked so well for so long. And it, it grows this resentment. Um, and France has a lot of trouble with this, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of, had more immigrants than all the other countries for a long time in Europe and had a and immigrants feel that first. They feel first there is something wrong. There's not enough opportunities being produced. I'm in the wrong place. There's a lot of social resentment. If you have less immigrants, you know, there's less of a problem, but you, you get there as well. And I think all the other European countries, maybe exception of Poland, have the exact same problem now. Um, that young people are not properly integrated into the system because simply there's no opportunities for them. It's the boomer generation and the generation after that that holds these powers. And Maybe it is time for a revolution, right? I mean, not a revolution that's bloody, but a revolution in terms of how we think about how creating new opportunities. Uh, and the French are experts in this. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I hope we can learn from that. But this renewal process, there is something broken in it. And obviously, we're going to get beyond that. It's not going to stay like this forever. But I'm trying to find out what happened. And I think entrepreneurs feel this first because they, like immigrants, they rely on new opportunities being created. Everything's just the same. You know, the incumbents eat away all our business. Then Amazon does everything. Google does everything. We, we literally have no place in society. And I feel this has definitely been happening the last 10 years. And the, the, the escapism, another ism that we wanted to talk about, from as digital nomads and you know, monasticism was, was, was equally an escapism. A lot of people in our generation, they just escaped the reality. And they still do, like video games. And now, now, it's, now it's the next generation is infected by TikTok. That's a big problem. And since we, this, but this is the best solution for us. It's like drinking, right? Drinking is, seems really harmful because it harms your body. But for that person in that moment, and even for a long time, it's often the best solution psychologically because the alternative is suicide, violence, or other heavy drugs. Um, so, yes, I was hoping the French legacy has like an answer for this, right? France has been, I think it, I don't know how this, this plays out currently in France, but there is this, when I think back to the, to the French Revolution, 
it, it was a pretty unique novel thing that the French came up with, and then they just executed on it, right? And it kind of went astray from there. But I don't know enough about the French Revolution, but I admire it in a certain extent. Sorry, that was <laughs> that was it a question? Yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> I, I was just ranting. Um, I, I, I apologize for this, um, but but I keep I keep coming back to to these topics. Well, one last thing I wanted to 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 talk to you about. <clears throat> and I don't know if you, you've been looking into this more. There is this idea of, of monasticism, right? The, the idea that the, what started in, in Germany and France in the Middle Ages, that people kind of withdrew from society and became closer to God. They wanted to learn. So those were the two. The learning was kind of an after effect, but they're withdrawing from society and uh, being close to God and being pure. Um, that was a pretty decent movement. And then that later on started um, the, 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 the monasteries and the way monasteries really worked. Um, became rich so so quickly and mostly uh, France and Germany is this something you looked at um or you, your time of you know being in the Ukraine is that a theme that you can vibe with or it's something that you find it's it's too far away it's like a, a century ago when we talked last time sorry. we talked I think you were pointing this out that the relationship with what I've been doing in monasticism and then uh it echoes because yes in a way it's like withdrawing yourself from the real world like going into a place where it's kind of easy, you got food in the building downstairs, you can do everything like walking distance, you don't have many things to do because you only work and go to the gym and maybe play some guitar and walk at the beach. So that's very a limited scope of life. And you have, I mean, what drew me to, what drew me to go to, uh, to uh, and not to go, but stay in Odessa, was um, if you want to create a, play, a space in which you can do a lot of things on your own, you, you, have, to, you have to create the space. And one of the, the biggest thing is that saying no to distractions. And one of the hardest distractions, not the hardest, but one of the hardest things for me to say no to is friends and family, social, like, social gathering. And that's, I think, that the, the hardest to put you don't want to. You don't want to keep. First of all, to say no, <laughs> to, to ponder like should I stay or should I go, and also you want to be loved. So you don't want to keep saying no. I'm not going to see you. So when you find yourself in a place where, sorry, I'm not there. You you just stay there and it does the work for you. You don't have to say no to anything anymore, or at least for a given time. Then in terms of like. Uh, relationship to sacred stuff and, and, and God. I don't know how to put it because, I mean, I have my own way to believe in God. So you can call it God, but for some people it's not God. Like, whatever, like, that's lexical thing. But if you, if, if we want to talk about connection to yourself, like, if you, I think it's Socrates, think like, yeah, know yourself and you will know the universe and the God, gods. And definitely spending time with yourself helps being connected to something because you want to like you, there is no relationship there i mean but the every relationship comes back to a relationship to yourself and i don't think um sacred things and god is an exclusion to this rule i mean your relationship to god is your relationship to yourself but I, that's the way i understand it right now maybe i will change my mind or maybe i'm wrong i don't know but the, the way i i understand it
today. Well, a lot of people say, I, I just want to throw this in there, and I think it's very, really wise what you just said, but a lot of people say about religion, it's basically the, the abstraction of all the, of all our forefathers. So everyone who came, or fatherly knowledge, that doesn't have to be the male, but a fatherly knowledge of, it was abstracted out of everyone who came before us. And that's kind of the guidebook of, of, of what they would tell us. If they would be around, this is what they want us to know. I think that a lot of people refer to at least the Old Testament based religion, but Confucianism is similar. Buddha is like, Buddhism is like that too. The teachings of Buddha, that's what they would like us to know on a, Somewhat rational side. So it's the emotional side, you know, the, the, they say the chaos side, that's the female part, but that would be the male learning that we have to do. The female learning is often not written down. We get it from, from our mothers. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know, because now I'm, I'm, I start thinking about feminine energy and masculine energy, which is linked as well. When, when you, when you, when you withdraw yourself from, I mean, I haven't withdrawn myself from life. Totally, and and but I've been doing some experiments, but you also withdraw yourself from like from dating, for instance, for at least a few months. Willingly, I I I'm saying willingly, or doing things such as 100% abstinence for a given time. Uh, then you experiment with uh, masculine energy as well, like when you I mean when you're male. And these things are very interesting as well. Um, I think it's it's maybe it's, it's, it's some of the ingredients of monasticism more into it, but the difference is um, a, a friend of mine once say like you kind of like more than a hermit, <laughs> which is like make make made me laugh and it still makes me laugh. But I think um, it's more like hermit that than monasticism because when you when you when we talk about monasticism, uh, usually people are together. And they, they pray together, and there are rules, and then they do some work. Maybe they, they write the scriptures, or they do some uh, some labor, um, work with their hands. And, and 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 I was more of a hermit just because I was withdrawing from my peers, and I was not socializing so much, just to give myself a space, like a time where I could I could uh, where I could play. And build something without maybe without the pressure of it to work. So I, I could look. Yeah, I, I have this idea. I want to make it. I want to build it. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it uh, economically vi uh, like valuable. But I want to give it a shot, and I want to build it. I want to take it out of myself. And if I want to do this, I need enough space. I need enough time. I'm calling it space because you work in, in, in space, but I need, I need time. And so that was, that's why I think that that's the main reason I was, I've been staying for so long uh, on my own in Odessa. But at the same time, maybe I'm, I was finding this pretext of building a software to actually find myself on my own without just doing what I want. And maybe building software was only a pretext. And I think that's true as well. And so that's my last, <laughs> maybe my last point about this is that, so um, this uh, being alone, solitude is very interesting. At some point you need to go back into life. I think uh, withdrawing yourself from life too much, it, 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 you need a, um, a decent amount of it. I, I really encourage everyone to experiment 
like strong solitudes, the solitude that at some point you don't want anymore. Uh, that's not comfortable. Uh, it, it might be hard to experiment. I mean, it's easier when you are, you find yourself single than, uh, and I don't wish anyone finds themselves single. I wish you like love and relationship, long lasting relationship. But, uh, if you find yourself single at some point in time, I think it's very interesting to do this. I just lost the battery from my phone. Okay. I just wanted to say thanks for doing this, Charles. I, I, I'm running out of time and I know you, you, you're busy too. And, um, I, 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 there was some amazing insights into it. Um, so it's wonderful. We found the time and I hope we can do this again. Well, all right. Definitely. Talk soon. Bye bye. Ciao. Bye bye. Talk soon. Ciao.